Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 and verse 48. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You therefore must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And I want to invite you to imagine a scenario with me. Imagine, imagine every person you interacted with, you could see in the deepest, darkest secrets of their soul. You could see what was going on in their heart, those motivations as misplaced as they may be, those intimate thoughts. Imagine how that would transform how you interact with one another. Now maybe an even more terrifying thought. Imagine everyone you interacted with could see everything that was going on inside of your heart. <laughs> yeah, that's terrifying, right? It's those moments when you're sitting there trying to sincerely nod in agreement with your boss, but inside you're single-handedly giving him the business, right? Those moments when you're serving maybe with one of our partners, maybe at KCRM or Crossroads Academy, but inside you're full of disdain because you heard some of your friends were playing Frisbee golf on one of the few nice days in January. It's maybe those moments on a Sunday morning where you're smiling and you're shaking someone's hand, but inside you're thinking, oh, I thought they went to second service. <laughs> and unbeknownst to you, they're thinking the same thing. You know? What a terrifying world that would be. What if all of those misplaced motivations, those intimate thoughts, those deep desires that we try so hard to keep hidden from one another, what if they were always on display? Well, this is where the bubble bursts to some degree, because when God sees you, he sees the real you. He sees your heart, who you are, and the depths of your being. And for some of you, when you hear that, you think to yourself, well, okay, that's very uncomfortable. I'm a little more self-conscious, but the more I think about it, Gabe, at least I haven't killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. You know, I'm not racist. I say my peace in conversations, but I'm not judgmental. On the whole, I think my heart's doing pretty well, and if I'm comparative here, I think I'm doing pretty good compared to most people. If that's in any way, shape, or form you this morning, I want you to hear you're missing Jesus' design and call on your life, and you're missing out on something so much better. You know, whether you're a Christian or not, I think there's this subtle but pervasive belief that somehow Jesus, when he seeks to help us out, lowers the bar so he can meet us. We may not say that out loud or maybe not use that particular kind of language, but the whole invitation to come as you are from Jesus is easily interpreted, well, since you're here, why don't you just go ahead and stay as you are? when nothing could be further from the truth. You see, Jesus never came to make things easier. 
Actually, what we come to rediscover this morning is that Jesus makes everything harder, but better. Jesus makes everything harder, but better because he sees our hearts. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to any one of us. You know, as we've been walking through Matthew's gospel account, a gentleman who walked and talked with Jesus in the first century. And if there's anything we've discovered over the past few weeks, it's that Jesus flips everything we thought we knew on its head, which is kind of why we've called this particular section of Matthew the upside down kingdom, because in this paradoxical reality, those who lose their life find it. The first become last and the last become first. And we've been walking through the most amazing sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, from the most brilliant man who ever lived, Jesus Christ. And as we've been walking with him over these past couple weeks, he's been laying the groundwork for what it means to live the good life, to be a blessed person. And then we saw how last week, what it means to be a catalyst for blessed change, the salt and light in a broken world. And this morning we see that Jesus makes everything harder. (laughs) So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you're using our community Bibles on the flip side of the dividers there, it's on page number 810. You see, we're not the first generation, first culture to misunderstand Jesus. There was this whole host of folks in the first century who thought that Jesus came to lower the bar. And he reads this like a book. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. So he repeats this, okay? It's not about abolishment, but to what? It's not rhetorical, but to what? Fulfill them, fulfill them. And there's a lot that hangs on this word fulfill, and we're going to come back to that later. But before we even begin to navigate what it means for Jesus to fulfill, we need to see Jesus' passion for the law and the prophets. Continuing on in verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is maybe the smallest and most insignificant letter in the Greek alphabet, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus ups the ante here a bit when we get to verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So wait, what? (laughs) This doesn't seem to make sense to some degree, but here's what Jesus is talking about. The scribes and Pharisees were kind of like the teacher's pet. They were the neighbor who went knocking on all the other neighbors' doors to make sure everybody in the community was living up to the HOA standards. They were the colleague who memorized the employee handbook of, you know, the code of conduct. The Pharisees and the scribes would have never pulled out their iPhones and asked, Siri, what should I do with this leftover bull liver? Okay? They knew the most obscure passages about the most obscure components of life. And then Jesus says, yeah, everybody, everybody knows that everybody thinks that these folks are the most righteous, but I want you to know you've got to be more righteous than them. That seems a bit deflating, doesn't it? <laughs> to say the least. 
And it all hangs on this word righteousness, righteousness. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but this word righteousness, I think, can be best described as rightness. When we talk about what ought to be in the world, where when God's design and our lives fall in alignment with God's design and we begin to see flourishing, it is the way it ought to be. It is right, rightness. And this is an essential component as a part of God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying that this rightness, it can't just stop at the surface. But to be a part of God's kingdom, his heaven on earth kingdom, this rightness has to be displayed in a right heart. And this is actually where the scribes and Pharisees drop the ball, okay? They could quote the most obscure passages you can find in the law and the prophets, but their expertise stopped there. They could talk to their blue in the face about right and wrong actions, but completely missed the heart. And that's what we begin to see Jesus unpack in these six illustrations, which are kind of six misconceptions common in first century Israel, and actually six misconceptions that are still common in our cultural milieu today. And what Jesus does with each one of these is he raises the bar. So let's see where he starts off here in verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying not murdering someone doesn't instantly make you a good person. So don't lower the standard just because you haven't killed somebody. Instead... If you have ever found yourself consumed with anger at someone, then you have no place in God's kingdom. Today we have our own ways of lowering the bar, don't we? We may not come right out and say it, but it's understood. Anger is acceptable as long as it's on Facebook, right? <laughs> But what Jesus is saying right here as he's diving deep into the heart is that your inflammatory and trolling memes come from the same heart orientation as murder. But why? Why all this stink about anger anyway? I mean, isn't anger an important emotion in the human experience and at times very valid? Yes. But the kind of anger that Jesus is highlighting here is when you are consumed with anger towards someone, such that it comes to define you. And it actually beckons you to redefine the person you're angry at, to redefine the person you're angry at. Look at this in the passage. You can begin to see the progression. They're angry, then they throw insults, and then they finally characterize that person as a fool. They are foolish. They are worthless. And with contempt blowing through your bloodstream, now you have all the justification you need to strike, hit, to fight, to make that passive-aggressive Facebook post. You see, earlier this week, I was in a conversation with a friend, and they stung me in that conversation. Something kind of rubbed wrong against my ego. And I got in my car, put it in drive, you know. And I'm rehearsing this conversation over and over and over. And with each go-around, I start looking taller, smarter, more brilliant. I've got my act together. And with each cycle, that person I was ticked off at became smaller 
even more stupid, more foolish, and slowly I dehumanize them. And slowly I become consumed with anger. It's kind of terrifying to think if any one of you would have parked next to me at a stoplight in that moment, <laughs> what you would have seen in the car at 10 and 2, you know? Um, but here's the reality. This kind of heart, it has no place in God's kingdom. And if you've ever experienced being consumed with that kind of anger before, you know how terrifying that can be, how out of control until you have to hit the brakes. So what about you this morning? You may look calm and collected. You look like really nice people this morning. But you may not be a very expressive person. You may have great self-discipline, but inside you're a serial killer. <laughs> What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your heart? Let's look at the next misconception he dismantles here in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Listen, believing you're in a right relationship with people sexually just because you haven't slept with them is like saying you're in a really good relationship with other people because you haven't killed them. <laughs> now, and that may sound ridiculous to some because we know that it's much more involved than that. But what Jesus is saying is we all set the bar for sexual rightness somewhere. And what he doesn't want us to miss is that the bar isn't set at just avoiding physical action. But it goes down to the heart. You see, action is just the consummation of a heart's intention. And he's not worried just about the fruit, but at the very root of where this sin began to conquer you as a person. Instead, Jesus, he raises the bar in the very depths of our hearts such that even if you look at a person who is not your spouse with the intent to then begin imagining intercourse with them, not tempted, not fighting a thought, but chasing after imagining that intercourse, then it's as good as committing adultery and you've done it in your heart. You're just as guilty and it's slowly destroying you. So often I, I hear, well, 50 shades of gray, you know, or maxim, those are harmless escapes. But what Jesus is saying is that those come from the same heart orientation as adultery. And there's no place for that kind of heart in the kingdom of heaven. You know, with this as the standard, it becomes less about asking the question, what did you do? And you begin to ask a different question. What would you do if given the opportunity? That's a terrifying question. What you begin to indulge in the secrecy of your heart that is only revealed to God if you are now given the opportunity within a physical interaction which no one would ever know about, what would you act out upon? What's going on in your heart? Moving on. Jesus says in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Look, this is a complex conversation. And actually later on in Matthew chapter 19, we're going to delve into the more intricacies of marriage and divorce. But here what Jesus isn't saying, to be clear, 
is that divorce is somehow this unpardonable sin or the forever scarlet letter. What he is doing is he's challenging the elaborate formulations, these mental gymnastics that we go through to find loopholes of escape from commitment. God never intends for marriage to end in divorce, ever. Not that it isn't permissible at times, but it's never desirable, and the ramifications are always deeper than we could have imagined. And what we hear from Jesus, actually later in Matthew 19, is that at the center of divorce, more than anything else, is a hard heart by at least one of the spouses. Oftentimes, we can hear, well, you shouldn't stay with someone you don't love anymore. And pursuing romantic love, that's the right thing, the authentic thing. And yet Jesus says a right heart pursues your commitments instead of looking for loopholes of escape. Whether you're married or not, as you think about your relationships, are you looking for loopholes of escape? Are you thinking about the ramifications that your decisions have on those who love you and those whom you love? What's going on in your heart? The next one's a little more tricky here in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, we shouldn't have to say, no, 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 I promise, or I swear by all that's holy, because we should be the kind of people that our yes means yes. We, hadn't, we shouldn't have to add qualifiers. A right heart follows through on a simple yes and stands behind a simple no. You know, I think in our overactive and flippant culture, we could say yes to 100 email invites didn't we? <laughs> that come into either Facebook or in our inboxes. And maybe we've been trained to always provide an out. So we say yes, but we're easily desirous to back out of a commitment. When Jesus says, a right heart just does what it says, period. And as a people pleaser myself here, I often think, Gabe, okay, are you giving a half-hearted yes to this request because I'm looking to be liked? I'm looking for respect. I'm looking to be seen as sincere such that I know I'm really not going to be able to follow through as much as I would if I was completely honest with myself and this other person. And so next time I'm going to have to say, well, I promise I'll be there. I, I swear I'm going to make it work. What's going on in your heart behind your yes and your no? Now, for one that's a little more familiar, I think, to us is here in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, once again, what Jesus isn't saying is that if you're in an abusive relationship right now, he's not asking you to quietly take it. Tell someone, anyone, talk with a pastor. What Jesus is doing, and he knows about many of us, is that our mantra when something wrong happens to us is that we don't get mad, we get what? Even, Even. right, exactly. 
And maybe you've heard that it said, look, you, you've got to be the one who looks out for you because nobody else will. And what Jesus is saying is that a right heart is willing and able to be wronged. Is willing and able to be wronged, vulnerable, without then plotting retaliation and revenge. A right heart is robust enough to actually be injured and that injury doesn't now become our world. But instead, you now begin to see the oppressor with compassion. You begin to see the person who hurts you as someone with human dignity and respect, as someone who has limitations under God. And you so stop the cycle of violence. This lex talionis here, this law of retaliation, it never really worked. If you cut off my finger, I'll just take your finger. <laughs> it never works because we always get caught up in revenge and going the extra mile and retaliation rather than love. How much of your imagination is wasted on conniving and scheming? How do you respond in active aggression or maybe passive aggression to those who have injured you? What's going on in your heart? The last one here from Jesus is the climax of all of these. And it's here in verse 43. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, few people manage to live their lives without accruing a group of people who wouldn't feel sorry if we happened to fall off the, place, the face of the planet, right? <laughs> Enemies. And maybe you've had or heard the call to practice tolerance with such people. Not so with Jesus. Jesus actually says that we are called to go above and beyond tolerance, to actually being proactive and pursuing their good, to pray for them, to love them. That doesn't mean we stop praying against evil that we see within structural injustice and systemic injustice and within the world that is around us, to be sure. But we see the oppressor once again in a different light. This is a bit of an extension of one, the one on retaliation, What's going on in your heart when your colleague tries to sabotage maybe another project you have at work? When your neighbor, maybe despite you, only lets his dog poop on your lawn? You know, when a family member intentionally doesn't invite you to a family gathering? What's going on in your heart? Is love or hatred reigning there? Because in each one of these, folks, for Jesus, it always comes down to the heart, which isn't anything new, although we so easily miss it. I mean, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, we read, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's a high bar. And even though he's looking there, we're all asking the question, what is he looking for? I mean, how good is good enough here? right? And Jesus could keep telling us the lies that we believe, the misconceptions that have bled into our lives, that we've come to define who we are, 
by. But instead, Jesus reveals a different standard altogether that's not a list of what's to do, but instead is a who to become like. And in chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This word perfect, it has the idea of something being complete, whole, when it matures, such that in the kingdom of heaven, as God's children, we are to grow up in the likeness of God the Father, and now His self-giving love becomes our standard. Jesus isn't saying, to be clear here, that we're seeking to earn our acceptance or earn our salvation. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Only he can earn that for us. But he is saying that once we have been invited because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus into the kingdom, we are to now grow and exert effort by the power of the Spirit to become more like our, like our Father who is in heaven. The one who, out of the overflow of his love, spoke creation into existence. And even though it rebelled and pushed him away, he didn't write off creation. Instead, he pursued healing and restoration. The same God who went to such great lengths that he sent his only son, who, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, evil action isn't the primary problem of human existence. You didn't happen to slip out of character because you were tired one day. It's your heart that's killing you. It's your heart that's killing you. You didn't just have a bad day at work and blow it because of the circumstances around you. It's your heart that's killing you. Later on in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says this explicitly in verse 18, or verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. According to Jesus, the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. Always. Once again, not that there aren't systemic and structural injustices that we need to be engaged in, but for each one of us in here and for each one of us across the globe, the heart of the matter is still a matter of the heart. And if we just focus on the surface, we're going to be racing after symptoms rather than dealing with the disease. It's your heart that's killing you. And this is why Jesus makes everything harder, because it's really hard to be honest with our hearts, isn't it? Jeremiah says this in chapter 7, your heart is deceptive above all else, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And yet, this is exactly where we need to be, wrestling through our hearts, the hidden parts that we don't want anybody to see, the spaces that we so easily make excuses for as justification machines. But with all of that... I. I don't want us to just see how Jesus has come to reveal how hard it actually is. Because that's not the sum total of what he's doing. He's revealing the truth of what it means to now live in the kingdom of heaven because he wants to also make everything better. What happens in any other aspect of your life when you lower standards? <laughs> you also lower the outcomes, right? <laughs> Whether it be frustrations in dating, 
Frustrations in our education system when we keep lowering the bar. Frustrations in a toxic work environment when we make it about the bare minimum. And Jesus, he won't let up on us because he knows who you are. You are a human being made in the image of God, a loving God. And this is why we sang earlier, two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness. Yes, we desperately need the grace that comes in the gospel through Jesus' death that covers our sin, that makes the entrance to the kingdom possible. But he has also endowed us with great worth and potential when we seek God's rightness in our lives. I mean, can you imagine a city made up of people who, rather than just trying to manage their misbehavior or their sinful actions, actually invited Christ to come do surgery on the deepest desires of our hearts such that we found alignment with his perfect love? I mean, this would be a kind of people who would lay anger aside, as Paul calls us to in Colossians, that when your will is rubbed the wrong way, you're able to brush it off or confront in love. And when a court case is brought against you, you don't retaliate. But instead, you actually pursue them and put everything aside so that you can pursue reconciliation. In a a sex-obsessed culture, this people would buck the norms and instead of pursuing and so abusing other people as objects of exploitation, now we approach one another as human beings worthy of respect, body image, doesn't consume with distorted misbehaviors, but instead is now a place where we pursue health together. And with anger and lust no longer having a foothold, husbands and wives will be free to pursue forgiveness and actually be a presentation of raw love that can stand the test of time, some 40, 50, 60 years, as long as life so allows. The people, this people would be unafraid to say no when it was necessary. And their yes would be as good as gold. No longer would you need contractual agreements. Can you imagine a world in our litigious society where that would be possible? Then driven by such love for the other human being, if sued when they went to court, they would not only just settle the case, they would actually pursue to make sure that the person who brought the case against them would be cared for. When they're asked to help move furniture, they would come help pack. <laughs> it just got real, didn't it? <clears throat> when, if a brother was in dire straits, they would do what they can, sell what they must in order to help get him back on his feet without worrying about getting back their investment. Not about building a dependency. There's some complexity there. But when their enemies even laughed at their failure and maybe sabotaged some of their efforts, they didn't come hailing down condemnation, but instead prayed for them, loved them, and greeted them with respect, even when it came at personal cost. I mean, isn't that the kind of city every single one of us wants to be a part of, to live in? I want my neighbors to do that, although I don't know if I could. (laughs) And that's exactly who Jesus is calling the church to be. We can't just pluck this passage out of its context. It comes on the heels of verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5 where he's calling us to now be salt and light. That our good works might glorify our God, the Father in heaven. Now, some of us may be too jaded to even think that this is possible, this side of heaven. And that's kind of the point. 
Because what has Jesus come to do? To usher in the beginnings of the kingdom of heaven in our passage. Yes? As C.S. Lewis says, the command be ye perfect is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. And just so we have appropriate expectations, that doesn't mean immediately, and that doesn't mean completely until he returns. But he's still doing work in us by the power of the Spirit. As Milo, you know, as, as inches may progress, but he's still growing us. But here comes the million-dollar question, how? How does he grow us in the very depths of our hearts? And I think there are three things that are at the core of submitting to God's work in our heart's transformation. And here's the first one. We have to be able to admit how messed up our heart is. We've got to be able to admit, first and foremost, just how messed up each and every one of our hearts are. You know, Jesus doesn't call us to stay where we are. He calls us to grow up. And you're never going to grow up unless you recognize your need to grow. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, yeah, I got that name right, I think, <laughs> Nobel Prize winning novelist who survived the gulags, listen to what he writes. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, which we so desperately need to hear today, but right through every human heart. No one is exempt. We need to remember Jesus' summarizing mantra that we heard in chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If he said anything, Time and again, Matthew says this was at the core of what he's proclaiming. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which means each and every one of us be, should be engaging in confession. Hmm? In areas that we've missed the mark. Not just in action, but in heart orientation. Both to God and to one another. And if you don't know where to start, you can pick one or two of the illustrations that Jesus has here in our passage and ask him to grow you deeper, expand your capacity for love in this particular area of your life. But remember, it may feel like someone's plucking out an eyeball. It may feel like you have to lose an appendage. It may feel that way. But Jesus is working towards something that is better for you, for the community, and for the world. Not just you but not an isolation of you. For you, the community, and the world. Second, focus more on your heart condition than your behavior. Focus more on your heart condition than your behavior. We are experts at sin management. Lowering the bar to just focus on external actions. And then instead of this full-on repentance that digs deep into the heart... The way you can kind of differentiate this, this is something I've discovered from Dallas Willard in his book, um, The Divine Conspiracy, excellent resource if you want to pick that up, is he says, we need to differentiate between two kinds of questions. This is the kind of question you don't want to ask, okay, just to be clear, in these concrete situations, did I do the specific things of Jesus's illustrations? Don't ask that question. Otherwise, you're going to make this a new standard where Jesus is actually saying the standard is God the Father, not even just these six. It's up and further beyond any of these. Instead, 
Willard highlights that the question we should be asking, a heart question is, am I becoming the kind of person Jesus' illustrations are illustrations of? You see? Am I becoming the kind of person that Jesus' illustrations are illustrations of? It focuses more on the relationship to God the Father than a legalistic code that dives deep into the heart rather than just remaining on the surface with action. And the best training ground for your heart is the spiritual disciplines. And those of you who are in community groups, we're going to be walking through the yoke of Christ together and how the spiritual disciplines continue to form, reform, and help correct the deformities of our lives. For example, engaging in scripture reading and prayer is one of those moments where you submit to God's authority and allow him to challenge your heart to reveal the deceptions and the lies that you've come to believe and align your desires to his. And lastly, you know, all of that is for naught if you don't cling to Jesus. <laughs> you can do the first two things and be utterly lost and completely decrepit, okay? But, but you've got to cling to Jesus because as the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Yeah, Jesus makes it harder because he demands rightness, righteousness, all the way down to the depths of our heart, but he always does so by supplying righteousness in his life, his death, and his resurrection. This is what Jesus meant earlier when he said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it, to accomplish its purposes, not to reject justice, but to satisfy justice. And then here's the kicker. As we saw in Matthew 4, he calls us to follow him. It's not Jesus goes and does all of that and we get to sit by and do nothing. Now he says, come, take up your cross and follow me, yeah? we hear that? And now he floods our heart with forgiveness and love that we might have something to give to others. That out of the overflow of the love we have received in the gospel, we might now be empowered to give to others. And Jesus will not let us remain stingy. You hear me? This is what Jesus is highlighting here. Jesus makes everything harder, but better. Don't let him don't just seek him out to manage your life. Let him do surgery on your heart. Let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, have mercy upon us and forgive us. Oh, that we might delight in your will and then out of the overflow, walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Anything else is hypocrisy. Lord, have mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.